Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. And if you are someone who lives in the city of Detroit or anywhere in Southeast Michigan, you really don't want to miss today's podcast. We are talking about crime and violent crime in particular, the crime that we live with, the crime that shapes our communities. What are the causes of that crime, the origins, where does it come from, and what are some of the solutions that we should be pursuing? Thomas Apt, a professor of criminology at the University of Maryland, will join to talk about his research on those questions. And Don Eisen, who is U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, will join to talk about a partnership with the city of Detroit to lower crime in two of the highest crime precincts in Detroit this past summer. It's a podcast you don't want to miss. Thomas, welcome to Detroit Today. Pleasure to be with you. So as I said in the open, I've lived here in Detroit for about 40 of my 52 years uh, on on the planet. And the incidences in which I've brushed up against the violence that happens in Detroit and frankly in some of the other cities where I've lived, um, you know, they stick out in in your mind. You can't forget them. At the same time, I count myself kind of fortunate. Uh, I'm not somebody who's experienced the worst sides of some of that violence. But I wonder if you could start by talking about what you think is the biggest issue we face with violence in our communities uh, based on your on your research. What is the root cause of this violence in, in, in high crime areas uh, based on the research that you're doing? Sure. Uh, and thanks for the question. I, I think it's important uh, to sort of just acknowledge uh, um, to you and to your audience that uh, violence is incredibly um, damaging and costly um, to those of us who have been exposed to it personally, um, to our families, to our communities, and and to society at large. And, you know, some of this conversation, um, possibly because I'm a researcher, uh, you know, might sound a little clinical, but I think we can never forget the, the human cost mm-hmm. of violence. And um, as not just a researcher, but as a uh, as a victim of violent crime, as a former prosecutor who's prosecuted violent crime, as a former teacher who lost students to violent crime, um, I understand that. So to to try to answer your question, which is a, a big complicated question, I think it's important to sort of separate the, the, the issue into macro factors and micro factors, meaning, you know, the big broad causes of violence in the United States and around the world, and then the um, sort of specific uh, drivers of violence in any particular um, place. And so in terms of the macro factors, um, they are generally, uh, you know, they generally involve how many people you have in, def- in desperate circumstances. And I'm framing it that way because I think broad the broad measures of sort of poverty and inequality and lack of opportunity don't necessarily actually get at what, uh, what it will actually uh, drive people to, into violence. 
there's a uh, there's a, a very well known theory in criminology called strain theory, and you know, broadly speaking, it just means that uh, the more strain and pressure uh, you're under, uh, the less likely you are to make good decisions, and that involves whether or not to uh, get involved in crime and violence. And so, what I think that you can see is when people are in crisis, they are much more likely to get involved in crime mm -hmm. and, and in violence. And so we see good research that says that things that keep people out of crisis have a positive effect on crime. So that's things like expanding Medicaid access, making sure that people have access to the health care they need in terms of mental health care, um, substance abuse treatment, things like that. Uh, we see that uh, uh, broadly, um, that those types of investments um, are going to have a positive effect on uh, on crime and violence. And the reason for that is that the key driver in my research of violence is not sort of poverty per se, but it's concentrated poverty. It's the type of poverty where you're you're not just poor, but you're dep sort of systematically deprived of various types of resources. So your the community that you live in um, has, you know, very, uh, very poor health outcomes. It might be, you know, a site, a dumping site that's exposed to environmental toxins. On top of that, your schools are poor. On top of that, uh, there's very few jobs in the area. On top of that, there's high levels of violent crime. And one of the things that uh, that we found about concentrated poverty poverty is a, a sort of fundamental driver over time has been ra racial segregation. And that sort of takes us back to sort of our ugly legacy of racism in this country. And many of the most violent communities in the United States uh, were intensely racially segregated. Um, and once they were racially segregated, then broader society sort of started systematically disinvesting in those communities. Mm -hmm. And so, but, and so while, you know, it's a sort of a, a truism to say, you know, um, you know, it's all about poverty or it's all about inequality or it's all about racism, um, those things are true, but it's important to sort of understand how that actually works in progress if we're going to try to unpack all that. And then the last thing I'll say is, um, it, it may be unfortunately politically controversial. I don't really understand why that is, but um, the United States uh, is a much more deadly country because we have so many more guns sure. in our general population and because we have such easy access to them. Um, if you look, if you compare our crime statistics to a lot of other wealthy countries, uh, we don't actually have that much more crime, and we don't actually have that much more violence. But we are a much more lethal country because so much of our crime and violence involve firearms. I'll I'll stop there. Yeah. So so I, I do want to drill down a little more on these these questions of origins, and I think one of the really important dimensions of that is is as you say understanding the layered origins for for violent crime um, that it's not one thing it's not one set of circumstances it's the confluence of lots of of different things many of the things you talk about though are problems we've had 
that you might just describe as endemic to American society. For instance, uh, structural racism, uh, other forms of of inequality, um, and 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 so I guess the, the the question that pops into my mind is: uh, Are you are you by focusing on crime missing the the intervention point. In other words, if, if crime is a function of these things that are really just part of American society, what chance do we really have of intervening in it in a way that that reduces it on a grand scale? Uh, these other these other problems seem to be the place that you could focus. We haven't been able to solve them in decades, if not centuries. So are we kind of pushing a rock endlessly up a hill? Um, it's a great question, and it really sort of prompts me to give you the second half of, of my answer, which is in the, I was just talking about the macro factors that, uh, that drive uh, crime, but there's also the micro factors. And one of the things that we know is that these broad social factors actually result not in just generally elevated rates of crime and violence. They actually uh, result in deeply concentrated uh, pockets of violence among the highest risk people in the highest risk places. So um, in, let's say, a city that is, you know, um, that is, you know, by American standards, you know, relatively uh, has, 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 you know, relatively poor, has lower sort of uh, overall average income. Crime is not spread evenly through, the, through that, uh, that place in Detroit or any other city. It still concentrates not just in neighborhoods, but in micro locations known as hotspots. And as, as, as anyone who knows, if you go into a you know, purportedly dangerous area, even in the most dangerous neighborhoods, most people are not dangerous. Violence is actually concentrated in those areas among a surprisingly small number of people. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C. Uh, a very rigorous analysis was done in D.C. a few years ago and identified the number of individuals at the highest risk for violence to be about 250 to 350 people. Hmm. And, you know, Washington, D.C. has some serious issues with violent crime. And so what and so the positive side of this is that actually you can actually make a lot of progress on these macro factors by by identifying and engaging where they concentrate. And so I don't want to suggest that sort of um, that these root causes are sort of destiny and there's nothing to do because basically there's two sides of, uh, of the issue. There's, you know, these broad, uh, there's these broad causes and then there's our response to those factors. And what we see is that cities that do better in responding have lower rates of violent crime. And, and so, you know, you know, no, no city, um, and no neighborhood is an island, but, how we respond to these issues really matters. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this really wonderful conversation with Thomas Abt about crime, its origins. We'll get to some of the solutions that he thinks we could be pursuing. Also, really want to get going with you on the phones and on social. Give us a call and let us know. 
if you or someone you know has been directly affected affected by crime or violent crime in particular. What does that look like in your life and your community here in Detroit or elsewhere in Southeast Michigan? Also, I know there are so many people in the city, especially who are part of groups, maybe they're neighborhood groups, maybe they're bigger organizations that are really working on reducing crime, convincing people not to be part of crime. How, how is that going? How does that work? What does that look like? in our city? Are you encouraged by the things that the city is doing to try to connect with community groups that are trying to fight crime? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you decided to join us. We're talking about crime, the crime we live with here in the city of Detroit, in other places in southeast Michigan, the crime that we as Americans increasingly are living with. Uh, what are the origins of that crime, the causes of that crime, and what are some of the solutions? We've got Thomas Apt with us. He's the founding director of the Center for the Study and Practice of Violence Reduction, also an associate professor at the University of Maryland's Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice. A little later, we're going to be joined by U.S. Attorney Don Eisen, who has been working with the city of Detroit to lower crime in two Detroit precincts uh, over the summer. They're going to talk about some of the things that they have seen that work there. Before we get to our call, Thomas, I want to talk about your idea for solutions. Uh, as you've pointed out already, this is a really complicated issue. There are lots of different facets of it. Uh, it, it connects, of course, to much larger problems. So what should we be doing? What are the, the, the pivot points, I guess, where either from a policy perspective or even an activist perspective – you can make a difference and and reduce the incidence of crime in these communities. Yeah, thank you for that question. And I think it's important to sort of uh, give the audience a, a, a sense of optimism about this issue. Um, yes, there are sort of broader forces at play here that will take, you know, decades and generations to address. And we have to continue to fight for a more free more prosperous, more equal nation, uh, and that will help the crime problem. But in terms of specific things that you can do this year, next year, over the next three to five years, there's a bunch of things that you can do and are being done uh, that are yielding re real results. And basically, there's three fundamental principles when it comes to reducing serious community violence, meaning homicides and shootings, and things like that. Um, the first is, if you want to be successful, you got to be focused. And that means you got to be focused on the highest risk people and the highest risk places. 
the people who are at the highest risk for committing acts of violent crime or being victims of violent crime. And you need to focus on the places where those violent crimes are most likely to happen. And as I said, that's not so many places in uh, most cities and it doesn't involve so many people. If you're very focused, the next step uh, is to be balanced, meaning you've got to have some carrot and you've got to have some stick. Mm. You've got to have some um, things that for folks to say yes to in terms of services, supports, treatment, opportunities, but you also have to have some sanctions and punishments saying, look, you cannot continue to uh, engage in conduct that threatens this community. Uh, and if you do, uh, you will be held fully accountable. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing, and you know, we've seen this post-Ferguson, uh, post-Minneapolis, is uh, everything that you do in this space has to be perceived as fair and legitimate by the people who are most impacted. And that means not just uh, treating folks respectfully in sort of uh, encounters with law enforcement, but it also means giving them a voice and meaningfully include them in the policy choices that are impacting them. So those three things, if you want to be successful, you got to be focused, balanced, fair. Yeah. Uh, let's let's talk a little more about law enforcement, which, of course, has come more into focus in the last four or five years than it was uh, before in terms of the way it interacts with people in communities where there is a crime, the way it interacts, of course, with people of color, which looks really different uh, than it does uh, for other folks. In your mind, uh, how would law enforcement operate in a world where some of these solutions that you're talking about were, were, were being acted on? What, would, what differences would we see with, uh, with the police? Sure. So it's not to my mind, it's not, you know, one one person's opinion. There are literally, I don't know, dozens, maybe more than 100 studies uh, of policing that use rigorous experimental designs that tell us what works and what doesn't in policing. And broadly speaking, what those many, many studies show is that the more targeted you are, the more effective you are, and uh, the more uh, fair you are, the more you focus on partnerships, on relationships, on treating people fairly, the more sustainable your work is uh, and the more the community responds to it. And so uh, though, so broadly speaking, what we need, um, you know, if you talk to uh, law enforcement, sometimes they'll say, um, you know, uh, don't fish with a net meaning don't resort to broad, over-inclusive strategies. You know, we're going to go into this neighborhood and we're going to stop and search everybody because this is where the crime is, when in fact the crime even in that neighborhood is being perpetrated by a small minority of the people. And so that's what you really need from policing. And I think what we're hearing, you know, in the wake of all of these, uh, all of these you know, terrible incidents of police use of force and violence is, uh, you know, we're hearing that policing needs to be better. But, you know, I go to a lot of uh, uh, community meetings. I'm in touch with a lot of people who live in high crime areas, and I don't hear them saying no more police. Uh, 
I hear them saying we need better police and we need police uh, serving this uh, this community the right way. Let's start today with Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, what's on your mind? Good morning. In my neighborhood, I notice um, that everybody is mounting rain cameras, not just to stop porch thieves, but general crime. I even uh, heard a, dis- a, a domestic exchange angry and somebody screaming they have cameras they can see you Hmm. so my question is how have cameras or have cameras uh reduced the incidence of crime yeah Bernadette, that's a wonderful question and uh, you know i want to add a little to it before i turn it back over to thomas apt i think we have to talk about private surveillance right The, the the cameras that that we as citizens put around our homes and on our homes so that we can see what's going on. But then also public surveillance, which uh, here in the city of Detroit, of course, we live with an awful lot of. We have a a program called Greenlight here where owners of businesses can uh, sign up to have surveillance at their their places of business uh, to, to try to uh, at least catch criminals after they do what they're going to do. If you drive around the city at night, uh, the number of green lights flashing, which is the sign of the businesses that are participating uh, in this program, is is just overwhelming. I mean, you can't go more than a block or two without seeing a green light. Uh, we also, of course, have uh, a shot spotter, which is a, a police-supervised a surveillance kind of, of program and and there's talk about lots other lots of other kinds of uh, of surveillance. So so Thomas talk both about private surveillance and what it's doing but also this move toward more public surveillance. Sure. So, you know, ShotSpotter is actually a sort of audio surveillance uh, thing that it, it can, you know, uh, it has computers and microphones that can pick up uh, gunshots and the evidence uh, for shot spotter um, is very weak. We don't know a lot about whether shot spotter works, despite the fact that jurisdictions are spending a lot of money on it um, and have been doing so for a long time. The evidence on um, on cameras and that form of surveillance, we ha- we know a lot more. And the general answer is that cameras are um, are you know can be a useful tool and they can modestly reduce crime, um, often uh, better for nonviolent crime than violent crime. Um, but they're not uh, sort of a, uh, a panacea. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, we're not gonna camera our way out of violent crime, but they can be a helpful, uh, a helpful part of the, of the solution. And one thing, you know, I'm not just a researcher, uh, I've, you know, uh, been head of public safety for, for New York State, and I've been, you know, on the other side of this as well. And uh, one thing I have to say about technological solutions is they're only as good as the people who are using them. And so, you know, uh, if you're going to use cameras, if you're going to use, you know, uh, acoustic gunshot detection, you really have to have the right staff and the right training to use those effectively. And I've seen a lot of jurisdictions just bring in, you know, just buy a bunch of toys and not really invest in learning how to use them and not much happens. Yeah. So, yeah. so qualified, yes, they can be helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course there's the, the 
rights issue that I think you've got to always be balancing when you're talking about surveillance. And, and that's a, a moving target in a society where, as I point out, private surveillance is is increasing. I mean, I think you can't walk through most neighborhoods and presume that you're not on somebody's camera. Uh, but but we still have to be able to, to, to understand that that privacy is a fundamental right in in this uh, in this nation, and that uh, there are ways in which this surveillance could end up encroaching on that. Could, but I but I think that a lot of those uh, those concerns are often hypothetical. Mm -hmm. We haven't actually seen um, you know how closed closed camera TVs encroach on on civil rights and civil liberties yet. Mm -hmm. There are theoretical ways, but. Remember, if you're being filmed in public, um, you're being viewed in public, and and so there are. So I think it's something we need to keep our mind, our, our eye on, but uh, but I think that we need to look for actual intrusions on civil liberties, not hypothetical ones. Yeah. 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 Again, Bernadette, really appreciate the call and the questions. Let's go to Fred in Milford. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Outstanding show, Thomas. Great job, Stephen. Great job. Uh, I was a former prosecutor in Wayne County, and I was a defense attorney, 45 years as a trial lawyer. The interesting part of my background is my brother went to prison for fighting cops, hmm. fought for the heavyweight championship at Jackson Prison against Alvin Blue Lewis. Blue comes out of the joint and fights Muhammad Ali in oh Ireland for the championship of the world. <laughs> the point is, we were guys that were destined to have a chip on our shoulder with a low self-image. How does that affect uh, what we're talking about as far as propensity for violence, number one. Uh, number two, how does early intervention in families, if you can get into the families of these kids, work with trying to take away that low self-image? And, of course, me, a white growing up in Detroit, I had a lot less opportunity, uh, I mean, a lot more opportunity than the blacks that live nearby. What about this low self-image, this chip on your shoulder, this you're not going to tell me what to do? Mm. And what about early intervention, Thomas? Mm. Fred, I really appreciate the call and uh, that, that really uh, fascinating story about, uh, about your brother as, as well. Uh, Thomas, go ahead. Sure. Thanks, Fred, and, and thanks, Bernadette, for the question before. Um, you know, this is this is a uh, this is a broader question. Um, you know, we need to invest in our young people uh, and to make sure they have things to say yes to and feel good about, as well as things uh, as well as punishing them uh, uh, when they uh, when they you know fail to say no to the right uh, to the right to the wrong things. Um, but in terms of anti-violence work. Remember that you're not just focused on uh, all young people. You're you should be focused on young people who are displaying significant warning signs of being coming, um, you know, involved in violence. And so, you know, they're, uh, you know, they've got serious. They're often sort of shuttled between various systems. They're in family court. They're in juvenile court. They're getting suspended and, and kicked out of school. All of these different things. And for those um, individuals who are sort of, it looks like they're on a path to, um, to a, a life of crime, you need to inter intervene robustly. And the good news is that there are interventions, um, you know, uh, multi-systemic therapy, 
other therapies that use cognitive strat cognitive behavioral strategies and other things, often treating the whole family, not just the child, um, they can make a real difference. The challenge is, is that they are very expensive and, uh, you know, they require, you know, high quality people to do them. And so we need to be able to sort of set up an early warning system for the kids who are in the who are at the highest risk for violence. And then we got to be willing to make an investment in these kids because we can turn them around, but uh, we have to be willing to make a real investment. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Fred, really appreciate the call and uh, the comments. Let's go next to Ray in Detroit. Ray, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me Hi. on. I am. I'm a member of the Stop Shot Spotter Coalition in Detroit, and I'm also an assistant professor. I was part of the Public Health and Safety Committee hearing that happened yesterday uh, downtown when the uh, committee decided to move a vote today to general counsel to vote on automated license plate readers. Mm -hmm. Yes. I presented yesterday um, and talked about the way that we're spending a lot of money in the city on crime in that we're spending a lot of money on technologies that criminalize people. And what was said just a few minutes ago is that there's not a, a broad effect, but also a potentially lack of public trust when cities and police departments invest in forms of policing that, that broadly target large groups of people sure. rather than identifying smaller groups of people. So seeing as, you know, unfortunately yesterday, the Detroit Police Department in this committee meeting was unable to provide any efficacy data demonstrating the effectiveness of automated license plate readers. We know that today in general counsel, when this vote goes through, the vote on whether or not American Rescue Plan dollars, five million of those dollars, is going to be used to fund the expansion of automated license plate readers in mm -hmm. Detroit. That vote's going to be based on no efficacy data. So I think it's important for us to understand that we're investing in technologies in the city. Project Greenlight, that 90% of the time, more than 90% of the time, misidentifies black people's faces. Shot Spotter, that provides us with almost no efficacy data demonstrating any efficiency in actually locating people who have been involved in gun violence. And now ALPRs, in which no data, once again, has been provided to council who's making the decision on whether or not millions more dollars will be invested in the criminalization of Detroiters. Yeah. And I think these are important things for Detroiters to understand. Uh, absolutely they are, Ray. And, and one of the most frustrating conversations I think you have in the city right now with uh, city officials or police officials is the, the, <coughs> around the inability, their inability to, to, to quantify much of what's happening. Um, you know, how effective these are, how high the error rates are, especially for people of color when you're talking about uh, cameras and, and uh, identification of, of, of people. Uh, these automatic license plate readers, what are they going to be used for? How are they going to be used in policing? All of those questions are actually really important. Um, and I, I share the frustration that you have with um, with people uh, not being able to get answers to some basic questions. But, Ray, I actually have another another question for you before I go back to Thomas. I wonder what you make of 
the city's efforts to uh, engage community groups that are already working on anti-violence. This new Shot Stoppers program, $10 million that's going to aid community violence intervention programs around the city. You're somebody who's uh, apparently quite on top of all of this. I, I would really love to get your take on what they're doing there. Sure. So the Stop Shot Spotter, sorry, I, the, the name of this is <laughs> no, so hard I know. to say. The names are all very hard to, to keep straight. <laughs> Here we go. The Shot Stoppers program uh, is a program in which I believe something something around 11 community groups in the city were provided with $750,000 each yes. to create some kind of violence prevention and, and violence reduction in their specific neighborhoods. So one of the things that I have seen is that organizations, and I won't name any organizations because I don't think that's that's necessarily useful, but a couple of those organizations have done things like create intermediary apps through which you can immediately connect to the police. Mm-hmm. So we, we actually already have something that, that provides people with that service. It's called Dialing 911. Yes. We've also seen people, uh, sorry, one of these organizations in Northwest Detroit purchase bulletproof vests their team of people who have used $750,000 to self-deputize themselves Mm. Mm. and say that they are qualified to respond to sexual assault and sexual violence calls that they receive. I think it's important to understand the enormous skill sets that go into responding to particular types of trauma, harm, and violence that people do experience as a a consequence of, of just being alive in the United States. And that what was called for by community members in Detroit was not for the self-deputization of organizations that are involved in different different forms of, we, we could say, different strategies that they believe could prevent crime in their neighborhoods. But community groups and the organization that I'm part of, which is Urban Praxis Workshop, but mm-hmm. also the Stop Shots Better Coalition, was for a non crisis response team, an unarmed response team that can specifically respond to mental health crises, to things like sexual assault or sexual violence, and to not have that response team be directly connected to the police. We know that these kinds of non-unarmed response teams do exist in other U.S. cities, like in Portland and in a couple of places in in, in Minnesota. And that people in Detroit are really interested in having a team of this kind created through mm-hmm. the Office of Violence Prevention that is under under construction. It's being formed in Detroit right, right now. Right. And what we've learned about the Office of Violence Prevention is that they actually do not want to support this community need. Wow. Uh, Ray, I, I'm really glad you called because uh, it sounds like you are really plugged into what's happening, uh, you know, in, in our community around responding to these issues, but also responding to what city officials decide to do. Thanks so much for calling in. I, I want to thank Thomas Apt for uh, for being here with us. Uh, he was great uh, at, at setting the stage for uh, this conversation, putting it all in real context. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to switch gears just a little bit. We're going to talk with U.S. Attorney Don Eisen about a partnership with the city of Detroit to lower crime in two Detroit precincts this past summer. Really interesting program. We're going to hear 
what happened and what we learn about reducing crime overall because of it. Also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. And you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. As we talked about a little earlier in the show, at least by the numbers, violent crime in the city of Detroit saw a little bit of a decline this summer. This month, city, state, and local officials attributed that decline in part to the One Detroit Violence Reduction Partnership. That is an evidence-based initiative focused on Detroit's highest crime precincts and aimed at reducing that violent crime. To learn more about that program, including why it was started, how it worked, and what we learned, I'm joined now by Dawn Eisen. She is the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Dawn Eisen, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about what the One Detroit Violence Reduction Partnership is, how it was created, and what it achieved. Thank you. Um, The One Detroit Violence Reduction Partnership is really a violence reduction partnership that we are doing and executing throughout the district. And it focuses on exactly that partnership, partnership with not only law enforcement um, partners, but also other stakeholders, such as community based organizations, faith based organizations. Ceasefire, our focus deterrence is part of um, the executive team. And so we are trying to bring together these partners in a very intentional way, the subject matter experts on enforcement, prevention, and reentry, and come together for a strategy that encompasses all of those pillars that we believe are important to reducing violent crime in the um, in the district. And particularly the first formal uh, um, violence reduction strategy was our One Detroit strategy. Um, But our plan is to move it throughout the district, One Detroit, One Pontiac, One Flint, but One Detroit is um, definitely the first formalized uh, partnership um, that we've developed under our strategy. So let's talk about the two precincts that were involved and what you saw in terms of numbers uh, this summer. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, we did. um, First of all, our hotspot strategy is a strategy that we did last year, too. It's our summer enforcement strategy Mm -hmm. because, I'm sure as you know, uh, Steve, all across the country during the summer, violent crime really spikes. And so we have been very intentional about uh, um, partnering with our local state um, law enforcement partners to address the most violent areas in Detroit. And that is because hotspot strategy has been proven to work. Evidence shows that. And so we focused our attention on that. And that is the 8th and ninth precincts in Detroit. They are the most violent. And the ninth precinct for certain has been the most violent for a long time. And let's and give so we- people an idea of what parts of the city those are. And yeah. not everyone knows precincts. <laughs> yes, the 8th precinct is actually on the west side. It is uh, Greenfield, 8 Mile, Southfield, Evergreen, and then on the ninth precinct is the east side, and that is um, Kelly, Gratiot, uh, uh, Seven Mile, or Maras, and that in those areas near Osborne High School and Denby High Schools, and on the other side, um, the west side, near some of those west side high schools. So that is the area where we focused on because the data, and we are driven by the data and the data alone, the data 
um, told us that those areas were the most violent areas in Detroit. And so we put our attention there because again, evidence shows that it is a small number of people, a small number of groups and small clusters of pl places that contribute to the vast majority of violent crime. So we're trying to be focused in our approach to this enforcement in particular. Mm -hmm. And so what did we see in those two precincts uh, over the summer? What happened and and what do, do you feel like was the reason this seemed to, seems to have worked? Yeah, I think it's a, a commitment and dedication to trying to be creative, trying to be innovative and being very intentional and having a serious and committed partnership that worked, first of all. And that partnership included the community. We engaged with the community. We went out there and told them, being very transparent about our work. We met with the community relations councils in those precincts. We walked the streets and, and knocked on doors, knocked on them again yesterday to tell people about our peace um, march that we're going to do this Saturday in um, the 9th precinct. And we're going to do another one on October 14th in the um, 8th precinct and we're going to basically have a press conference right there in the community because it's about them and we're going to report out to them and they're going to be able to ask questions and then we're going to march in the name of peace. And so what we saw was nearly a 20% reduction during the summer from last year in the 8th precinct and an 11% reduction in the 9th precinct. We still have work to do. But we are encouraged by those numbers. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think the, the, the question, as always, for folks in Detroit is, what do we take from this that we can apply in other, in other places? Uh, you know, you, you talk about those two precincts, and, and I know when you look at violent crime maps in the city, um, you know, they show up in these very very concentrated, bright areas, uh, east and west, kind of wings. I always think uh, off of off of the central corridor in the, in in Detroit. But of course, there's crime in other places too. So, what do we borrow from this success uh, that that can work other places? I always want to just tell people that that was strictly our summer enforcement hotspot strategy, mm -hmm. but we've been. The, committed to this strategy throughout the city of Detroit. We have prosecutors in five precincts in Detroit, and they are triaging cases there with Detroit police, with ATF, with FBI, trying to determine which cases are best suited for federal prosecution. So this is not new. This is not just the summer. Mm -hmm. We've been doing it since last year, and we will continue to do that. We are in the fourth, the eighth, you know, we just moved to the second because we saw a spike in um, violent crime in the second precinct. But we are in the second, the fourth, the eighth, the ninth, and the eleventh, and we've been there and we've been doing this work. We've also been doing this work outside of Detroit in some of our smaller communities, Saginaw, Jackson, Flint, and Pontiac. And we have seen using this approach, triaging cases, being boots on the ground right there with the local um, law enforcement partners, determining who are who who which which individuals are best for federal prosecution. We saw more than 50% reductions in some of those smaller communities. And so we know that we can achieve that in Detroit too. We know that it will take more time for Detroit because as you said, Detroit is larger and it's um, violence is just not in the eighth and ninth. It's just that violence is the highest in the eighth and the ninth. And we try to address that in the summer in particular, but that is strictly our summer enforcement strategy. But we, we are in that precinct also all throughout the year and we will continue to be all over Detroit trying to reduce violence in this city. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Don Eisen, uh, U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. It was really great to have you here 
uh, to talk about this one Detroit Saturday, uh, strategy this summer. Uh, I'm going to make you promise that you will come back on the show sometime to talk about more of the work that you're doing there uh, as U.S. Attorney. And I think we've had you on too frequently since, uh, since you got that job. But I really appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you so much. I just appreciate your interest and the opportunity to share with the community what we're trying to do. And we won't stop trying to make it better and safer Detroit. We won't stop. That's it for the Detroit Today podcast. If you like this show, you get a lot out of it. You ought to be sharing it. Share it with your friends and your neighbors, your relative, anyone you think would enjoy it and would add to this community that we're building here. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our podcast is edited by Jack Felbert. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. We'll see you next time on the Detroit Today podcast.